Hi everyone, I'm Janae and I'm joined today with Melissa. Today we're at the Comp Bio Cafe once again and we're really excited to be able to chat with Anissa Valentine about her career journey from bioinformatics to data science and beyond. As a reminder, as we get started today, if you have any questions or comments to share, please email them to podcast at blackwomencompbio.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 302-715-BWCB or 302-715-2922. We may share your responses here on the show and we'd just love to hear your perspectives or any comments you have. Okay. In this episode, we'd like to shout out two new members to BWCB that were featured in our January member highlights. We have Korea Shelton at Washington University School of Medicine and Sarah Bartley at NC North Carolina A&T, whom we'll feature in the next episode, so stay tuned. To see all of our highlights, make sure to follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Yeah, and I also wanted to shout out two faculty who are part of the network. One is Dr. Denise Okafor. She is currently, she's recently awarded a Control Scholar Award through the Research Corporation for Science Advancement. And this is an award that goes to teacher scholars in chemistry, physics, and astronomy. And each awardee receives $120,000, I think, for their research and their work. So that's really cool. Um, And then the other person I wanted to shout out was Angela Brooks, who was a speaker at the recent AGBT meeting, which I think is like advances, Lord... I tried looking up this acronym, and <laughs> I don't. I think it's one of those things that started off meaning something, and then it's just it's the its own thing. Now. Hold on, yeah, because they have multiple different meetings. Multiple, oh. yes. So this meeting, I think, is like their main one. It took place in New Orleans, and it is the Advances in Genome Biology and Technology Conference. Angela was a speaker on day one. And this seemed like a really cool meeting for people in the genomics and biological data science space. Also, shout out to uh, friends, Stephanie Hicks, and other people who were just in the comp bio field. It seems like it was a really fun conference to be at. So if you're looking for a meeting to attend in the future, I would definitely recommend checking that out. So let's move to the second part now. We actually get to talk to Anissa. I'll do a quick introduction of our speaker and then we'll roll into our intro question. So Anissa is currently a data scientist with a background in bioinformatics and a strong academic foundation in biology. She holds a Master of Science in Bioinformatics from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and a Bachelor of Science in Biology from CUNY Brooklyn College. With expertise in both computational biology and machine learning, Anissa is known for her ability to independently lead projects from start to finish. She she has a keen interest in applying her skills to real-world challenges beyond traditional academic research, with a focus on developing and deploying machine learning solutions in the field of biology. 
Anissa's unique career journey includes transitioning from a genetics PhD program to data science in AI, reflecting her adaptability and interdisciplinary approach to problem solving. Currently, she is actively involved in advancing her knowledge in AI and machine learning, particularly in the context of computational biology, and is passionate about exploring the intersection of AI and genetics. Welcome, Anissa. I actually met Anissa, I want to say, one or two years ago at this point. We were connected sort of right at that time where you were considering your transition. We'll get to that in just a second, but we ask everyone this question, what is your relationship to CompBio? How would you describe it? It's a great question to start. Let me just say that, first off, I'm super happy to be here, so thank you so much for the invite. I hope that whatever I have to say will maybe not necessarily inspire, but at least give folks some information so that they can make informed decisions as far as career paths go. Um, my relationship to comp bio. So I, I guess the majority of my research background was actually in microbiology and immunology during undergrad, which is when I started research, published research and attended conferences and such. I didn't start comp bio till I started my PhD, which was actually in bioinformatics. And then I was doing a lot of human genomics research and trying to basically just identify cell signaling patterns from transcriptomics data. And I really loved that. But over time, I kind of loved the comp part more um, than the, the bio portion. So, and other reasons that I'll, I'll spare you. But I wound up qualifying, taking my qualifying exam and mastering out of my PhD program. So that's how I got the master's. And that was both my initial and my last exposure to, to CompBio. Yeah, I think you definitely have shared, you know, a unique perspective on kind of what went into your transition. Can you maybe walk us through or just tell us more about what were the key factors that influenced your decision. I think you're definitely working now in a space where you're still able to apply your skills, you know, in a different way. But for someone who could be thinking, hey, this PhD is not for me, but I know I have value outside of this, what would you say? That is a good question. So I, before I consciously decided to leave my doctoral program, I had to first audit my skill set and audit the skill sets of the folks who had the jobs that I wanted. And then I had to essentially draft a map of, okay, this is what I have, this is what I need, and what do I need to do to get there? And that was not an overnight thing. I think it took me, I was doing all of this in parallel while trying to prepare for my qual. It took me about two months, I'd say, of like just talking to people on LinkedIn, random people who just had the roles that I wanted, having informal coffee chats, doing a lot of side projects because academics don't really care about pipe. I mean, that might've changed now, but at least when I was in grad school two years ago, academics don't care about Python. The industry is probably primarily Python focused. So I had to do a lot of upskilling and 
it took a lot of time, but was a thousand percent worth it, I would say. So if you're in a similar position where you are like, mm, I like this, but I don't know that I like this enough to continue, or I like very sort of specific facets of this and not the entire thing, then I would encourage you to just talk to strangers. Like LinkedIn is super underrated. Find people in roles that are interesting, even roles with titles that you might not expect. Some folks are nice and will talk to you for free. I think that has since changed a little bit since I left grad school. Everybody's monetizing skills now, but just talk to people. That's how you're going to know what's out there because academia is not good at preparing you for quote-unquote alternative careers. I really like that you mentioned auditing the skills of the you know positions that you have. I feel like I also did a similar thing when I was ready to like graduate. So I think that's just a good skill in general if you're transitioning from out, you know, mastering out or transitioning from one career to another. It's really important to figure out what that gap is and how to fill it. I'm curious to know how has your background in genetics or microbiology influenced your approach to data science and machine learning? in the field of like bioinformatics and what you do now? That's a great question. I actually, it took me a long time to figure that out. And I would say feedback from a lot of my colleagues is what really helped me identify the value that I brought to the space. So like I've had very good managers and just very good coworkers that would pinpoint like, hey, like you're, you're actually really good at this. But I will say that PhD training teaches you how to think critically. And I think that skill is superbly undervalued because you can teach yourself Python and SQL and whatever other programming languages or querying languages you might need to fulfill a certain goal. But in the data science and AI space now, particularly with the advent of like generative AI tools that make coding super simple, what I found is that companies, businesses, hiring managers, folks in hiring positions are really prioritizing candidates who can think, candidates who can problem solve, candidates who can take a project from the very beginning, you know, identify its feasibility, utility, possible pitfalls, do the necessary research all before even starting physically coding something. So I think my two years in my PhD program and prior just doing research in undergrad really equipped me with a solid sense of critical thinking and, and being able to research. Like that is a skill, being able to research and apply said research. Mm-hmm. So AI is definitely not going to be taking over our jobs because <laughs> we still need people to, to think critically about these problems. Exactly. Y'all are good. We're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you walk us through your journey from studying biology in undergrad to becoming a data scientist? Yeah. Since leaving my program, I've functioned as a data scientist in very different spaces, actually. So I was in sales and marketing. Most recently, I was in healthcare. But Mm -hmm. to answer your question about going from like very traditional biology to comp bio to whatever I'm doing now, Um, I started 
at Brooklyn College. And when I started then, I had already known I wanted to become a scientist and, and pursue a PhD. So as soon as I started, I sort of hit the ground running and I joined a lot of the pipeline honors program. So I was in Mark, I was in RISE, I was in C-STEP. And throughout Brooklyn College, I did two, I think, summer research internships at different institutions, in addition to conducting research at Brooklyn College sort of full-time. So I did that throughout my undergraduate tenure. I published, I met some really cool people, really great mentors. And after that, I started a prep program, a post 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 back research program. I think that's what that stands for at Tufts in Boston. So I lived there for roughly a year and a half. And that was mostly focused in microbiology and immunology research, but using a lot of human models. So I went from like very basic, you know, growing stuff on agar plates and doing genetic crosses in Brooklyn College to using more humanoid models, translational medicine. And then I started PhD at Einstein doing bioinformatics. That's when the computational stuff started to come in. And then now I'm, I'm a data scientist, I, I, I guess, in the healthcare space. I'm pretty much a generalist, but I'll say that the maybe the common thread throughout all those experiences was critical thinking, like I told you guys, but also things like writing through grant writing, application writing, machine learning from the comp bio stuff in grad school, and just communication, like communicating very complex methods and ideas to really diverse audiences from experts to just completely non-technical people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also since I, I'm doing a master's in statistics and data science and like while there's commonality in the skill set, I think there is sometimes a very different way that people on both sides approach problems and also like share their work. So what do you think the difference is between maybe like data science, biological data science, and like what you were doing in bioinformatics? Because we might have the same handful of skills, right? Like R, Python, the statistics background, that is kind of like the fundamental. But what do you think is the difference in the nature of your work now? You mean like bioinformatics in an industrial space as opposed to bioinformatics in academia? Yeah, or more so the data science that you're doing now, as opposed to the bioinformatics that you were entrenched in in the past. Gotcha. So the data science I'm doing now, I'm on the commercial side of data science, so I'm not even in Mm R&D at all anymore. Uh, You can have R&D in industry and, and research in academia. The data science that I do now is primarily product focused and revenue driven. So what that means is I will join a data science team and we will be primarily concerned with shipping a product to the end user effectively. And we'll work very closely with the the product team, engineering teams, sales and marketing teams and executive leadership. So my work now I would say the time to impact has lessened significantly because you can work on something 
today and then next week someone uses it and they'll be happy with it or, or they'll hate it, but we'll get the user feedback very quickly as opposed to academia where I was doing bioinformatics research. The paper that I worked on during grad school two years ago only got published, I think, late last year. So, and that's just very much contributing to a body of knowledge. Like it might sit there forever. Nobody might ever use it or someone might years down the line. But the work I do now, I'd say I'm very assured that whatever I'm working on will have some sort of impact, positive or negative. And that is outside of the overlap in technical skills, as you mentioned, like the, the Python and the SQL and the this and that. Hey, Combio Cafe community, exciting news to share with you. We are opening up sponsorship opportunities for our podcast. If you're in the Combio field and want to reach a dynamic audience of scientists and leaders, this opportunity is for you. Picture your brand, company, or community featured in our episodes, reaching thousands of listeners. We offer tiered packages with shoutouts, promotional materials, and even a sponsored episode. Your support fuels not only Compile Cafe's growth, but the growth of our nonprofit, the Black Women in Computational Biology Network. This helps us to bring more diverse perspectives to the forefront through our scientific storytelling. If you're interested and want to partner with us, please email podcast at blackwomencompio.org. Let's drive progress and build community in Compio together. Yeah, so given your cross-disciplinary expertise, how do you navigate collaborations between experts in the different fields within your current role? I would say that the, the concept of an expert in this space, commercial data science, is very different from the concept of an expert in academia. Because in this space, you can be an expert having an expert, quote unquote, having less than five years of experience in your given area of expertise. You can be an expert as an individual contributor. You can be an expert as a people manager or as an executive leader. So it's an interesting question. Unless you're sort of in an R&D environment in industry, you're really not interacting with what I would consider to be an expert, just based on my understanding of what an expert is from my days in academia. You're more so interacting with what what we would call in the, in the field a subject matter expert, like an SME, that's a very common terminology. So you are interacting with folks who are just proficient in their given area. Like if I'm doing a regression model and this person is doing a classification model on my team, I'll go to that person because they have a background in this type of modeling that I can benefit from. And when they need my help, then they'll they'll come to me in that regard. But yeah, I really like that question. It's an interesting concept shift that I honestly hadn't even considered. You talked a little bit about having to communicate with different kinds of people, different SMEs. Could you... I guess, explain a little bit how that's different now than in, you know, the bioinformatics days. Sure. So in my space, 
we frequently interact with stakeholders and our stakeholders can be internal or external, meaning I could be at a company just because I've, I've interacted with both in the past. I could be at a company where my stakeholders are internal because that company is not necessarily selling a product. Um, we're just doing like providing a service or something. Whereas if I'm at a company, usually a startup that's selling a product to consumers or to other companies, then my stakeholders are going to be external because they're going to be other companies, people outside of, of the organization. So in my past roles, I've interacted with internal and external stakeholders. And it's interesting because you kind of have to manage people, first of all. There's a lot of people management that goes on in being a data scientist in the commercial space. And you also have to consider people's backgrounds. So a lot of my stakeholders in the past have been non-technical, meaning I'm talking about machine learning to salespeople, to marketing people, to folks who really just have no foundational understanding of, of any technical sort of thing. So you have to, what's the word? You have to sort of just make complex ideas digestible for different audiences. Likewise, if I'm working on something or my team is working on something that is supposed to have a really significant impact for the business, I might need to communicate that to external, not external, excuse me, executive leadership, which is another sort of tone that you need to be able to flip on and off as opposed to talking to non-technical stakeholders and then talking to technical stakeholders as well. Yeah, I think something that you're really hitting on is the different flavors that data science comes in, especially in industry, like outside of academia, period. I think some people don't realize what even commercial data science is because you could be scrolling through LinkedIn or scrolling through a company site or even a big pharma company and it's like, you know, they need a data scientist. I think you also, sometimes it's not even apparently clear what that means. You could be working on the data science for their manufacturing process, their marketing, their sales. But I think the impact of the work people might want to have, you know, if it is in a healthcare space still, or like a pharma or biotech, you could still be, you know, equally aligned with the community impact that you want to have, even if it's not R&D specifically. So I really appreciate you highlighting that and showing how crucial the interdisciplinary communication skills are still at this stage. For sure. Absolutely. So how at this stage do you measure the success or the impact of your projects, especially those projects that are outside of the traditional academic research, maybe conditioning that we may have been used to? It's a good question. In academia, you're just, so long as you publish, you're good for the most part anyway. When I transitioned, that was, that shift was sort of jarring because so you'll have, depending on, on where you work, you're going to have key performance indicators or KPIs. That's another like pretty standard commercial data science term. And broadly, those are going to be revenue driven because you want the company to make money or save money. 
but specifically, depending on your team, you might be interested in things like customer satisfaction. When I was at CBS, my team was focused on retail pharmacy optimization. So our KPIs were things like, are people picking up their meds? Are people using the digital platform? So your KPIs are going to look pretty different based on where you are, but broadly in the commercial data science space, so long as your projects are making the company money or saving the company money, that's like a, a good indicator of whether you're being, whether you're bringing value. Yeah, yeah. Can you maybe explain a little bit more what KPIs are to people? I think outside of academia may not necessarily be familiar with that way of tracking progress. I know leadership team, at least coordinators, are now drowning in some of these new acronyms, but especially in like being, you know, part of a nonprofit and just like running a team operationally. How is that maybe specific mindset? showing up in your day-to-day and what is it so you will let me not make that assumption if you're in a good place meaning you have a good manager you have good co-workers and colleagues you will be exposed to the relevant kpis as soon as you join because that's how you're going to track your independent project progress and that's how your manager is going to track the team's progress because your manager has to report to whoever is above him or her as well. So your KPIs are essentially going to be developed between you and your manager and the manager and your broader team based on the scope of your project. So I'll use CVS again as an example. My team sat within retail pharmacy. So everything that we did was to optimize retail pharmacy functions in some way. So when I joined, I had a one-on-one with my manager and that's pretty standard too, to have one-on-ones with your manager at some sort of cadence that you and your manager agree on. Had a one-on-one with my manager so we could go through exactly that KPIs, project scope, team dynamics, key stakeholders, who am I going to be talking to? Who am I going to be handing projects off to? And we define KPIs such that once I started, I could sort of hold myself accountable and he could also hold myself and the broader team accountable to executive leadership pretty much. So Mm -hmm. it's just like a, like sort of like a little bulleted list of here are the things that the company cares about. Mm -hmm. So here are the things that you should be in sort of weaving into your work Mm -hmm. as you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I honestly think that there are some things that academia could borrow from the rest of the industry or corporate world at large, especially just, you know, being a trainee currently, knowing how to manage up, knowing how to measure your own success. That's really what a PhD is anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think, I do think a lot of these frameworks could be interesting for people to look into. So key performance indicators, KPIs, OKRs, objectives, and key results, like they may seem very jargony, but I, I really do think that especially if you're interested in working anywhere outside of academia, it's never too soon to start getting used to these different frameworks for how we measure our own success. Yeah, for sure. Definitely not independent to the space. Mm -hmm. Universally cool, for sure. Mm -hmm.
In kind of thinking more about your day-to-day, what is one tool or software that you cannot imagine working without? Either tool, software, skill, set, what's been super important at this stage for you? Everywhere I've gone, I've used Python, so I will I will say Python programming for sure. And interpersonal skills, because everywhere you go, you're, you're going to have to manage personalities, unfortunately. I didn't think I'd need to when I left my program. I thought I was transitioning and, okay, I'm going to build models. Nobody's going to bother me. No. So... I had to lean really and still have to lean heavily on just my people management skills Um, and Python because Python is just super versatile. Everybody uses it less. So the, the exact tool or platform is less important. For example, if you want to do data visualization using a buy tool or a Tableau or whatever else is out there you can visualize in Python at the very least in multiple ways. So yeah, definitely Python and people management. Mm-hmm. And could you touch on a little bit more about the sort of like the dashboard tools you mentioned? I think in academia for sure, or at least in my experience in the data science, there's not always an emphasis on learning Tableau, learning like Power BI, learning anything else. But how does that come into play as you are working on these teams and utilizing those interpersonal skills? It's a good question. I will say, I will preface that by saying whether you are tasked with dashboarding or not is going to depend on, I'd say, mostly the size of the company that you join. Larger companies have very compartmentalized teams. So the analysts will do dashboarding. The scientists will do like modeling statistical modeling or or machine learning and then someone else will do like the business stuff in a startup the scientist tends to do everything and i've functioned in both spaces i'd say i have i've only used one visualization tool in like throughout my tenure in in the commercial data science space and that's been tableau oftentimes your analysis will be reduced to an Excel spreadsheet because that is what the higher ups know how to use. So they will prefer that to make their pivot tables and such. But Tableau, in my experience, has been sufficient. But I also don't, haven't rather, done a lot of dashboarding. I've sat more closely to machine learning, building models in Jupyter notebooks and stuff, and then handing that off to someone else. So speaking of tools, how do you see AI evolving in your field of data science or propelling how you want to move throughout the field? Great question. I mean, I personally use ChatGPT every day for everything. (laughs) I use it for everything. I think Generative AI will make a lot of the the lower level tasks simpler to execute, and that'll do a couple things. It will reshuffle the job market, which it has already started doing, but it'll also make the barrier for entry much higher because now you won't only have to know how to program in Python or R or Java or whatever but you'll have to really rely on those soft skills I was telling you guys about earlier. Like you'll have to come in knowing how to take a project from infancy stages to end of production, 
and you just can't have generative AI do that for you. So I've been using it to eliminate a lot of my grunt work, which has been fantastic. I still have to like fact check certain things, but I found myself relying on a lot of my quote unquote, like higher order skills way more often since tools like ChatGPT came out. Mm -hmm. And do you have any favorite resources or websites that you frequent to stay up to date in the field? I subscribe to, I honestly don't know how to pronu- how to pronounce it. I just know like how to read it. It's a, it's like bioarchive, but for computer science, it's a, a, I can like spell it out, but I can't say it, but it's like a research repository where you can like read stuff that's just coming out on a day-to-day basis. Oh, archive? Prior to it being- yeah. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. 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 The original, the original preprint server. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's just our. It's wow. okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That. And I do a lot of reading like technical blogs. So I subscribe to Medium. I'm subscribed to Substack. I follow a lot of quote-unquote, high-impact folks on LinkedIn, a lot of professors, folks at labs at Stanford doing computational work. What else? I think that's it. Just a lot of technical blogs and the preprint thing. Mm -hmm. Do you attend, like, conferences also? Like, I know that's a big thing in more the research side, but for what you do, do you also attend conferences to showcase your work and keep up with the field? I'm trying to do more of that. I've been to two. I went to Everyday AI by a company called Data IQ last year. I also went to the AI Summit, which is like this huge AI conference in New York City, mostly commercial AI. I haven't been as as good about going to conferences as I would like to be, but I'm also struggling to find more niche conferences where I can actually derive value from them and, and not just talk to generalists. So working on that part. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Are there specific challenges or opportunities that you foresee with the intersection of AI and the type of data science that you do? Yes. In short, a lot of like the open source stuff is great, of course, for democratizing data science in AI because now data teams can take advantage of like foundational models and such from hugging face and the like. But a lot of those open source tools, you also get the open source bugs. <laughs> so if anything's wrong with them, then then you inherit that too. And there's also enablement to consider because you still have non-technical teams who will need to be onboarded to these kinds of tools and tech, which which is a cost, a hidden cost. I think there's, I could probably write a book on like things to consider <laughs> with generative AI, but I think those are the, the two big ones, just inherited bugs and, and things going wrong and enabling non-technical and even technical folks too. I would definitely read that book. So let me know when you publish it. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And I think we're also at a really unique point where a lot of what's being labeled as AI are things that like computational biologists have been doing or 
biological data scientists have been doing. And I think Mm -hmm. it's not inherently bad because I think it's ushering in new people despite, you know, layoffs and things. But I think it's ushering in a different understanding and a fresh perspective of the capability and the power of computational biology and the skill sets that we have. But I think it does, you know, call for deeper discussion and like, what do we mean when we're slapping AI on everything? What's actually happening? But I like at least that it's it's allowing us for people in slightly different domains to be able to discuss and use sort of a similar language when we're talking about how we approach problems. So, yeah. I was feeling the similar sentiment when we're slapping machine learning on everything and it's like, that's a logistic regression based literally like, regression yes. <laughs> like let's calm down you get a lot of that in this space like you, yeah. you really need to be able to discern what is actually ai versus machine learning versus just analytics mm-hmm. so to your point yeah i agree 100 percent mm-hmm. as someone who's currently consulting in data science Can you share some insights into how you approach consulting projects in the field, either of cotton bio or whatever projects come your way? What are some common challenges you encounter and how do you navigate them? Yeah, so I will say I've I've just started consulting. (laughs) Like, I will say that consulting now is probably a little bit tougher than it was when I left my program and prior, just because there's so much talent, like so much and so much like high level talent now that it's hard to position yourself as someone who stands out for X, Y, Z reason. I will say, I think everybody should be an independent consultant Mm -hmm. because job security leaves much to be desired these days, but As far as challenges go, yeah, definitely standing out amongst a crowd of very, very talented people. Mm -hmm. But there's the benefit to having job flexibility. For me right now, finding clients is tough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's like my my major pain point right now. Yeah, maybe on that, what what went into your decision? I think you also mentioned earlier, right? Like most people are happy to talk to you, but there is probably a change in something in the water where people want to charge you to talk. Technically, that is consulting. Technically, we have expertise where we could consult on many different aspects. So how did you transition into saying, hey, my expertise has value and I want to help people in this this way? What was that like for you? Yeah, I think I... So when I, when I left grad school, immediately after leaving grad school, I was just like, okay, I need a job for obvious reasons. So got the job and then realized that corporate is really a shit show. So I started monetizing my skills on LinkedIn, really easy and simply just establishing a cadence of posts that would either educate folks or demonstrate something that I had built, something that I had done, a conference that I went to, just to increase my visibility on the platform. Um, And I was also very intentional about who I was following. So for a specified period of time, I was only following executive leaders, people who I knew could, you know, actually afford to pay me what I had set as my rate in exchange for my services or skill set. And then 
over time, I started, what's the word? I started creating a centralized place sort of for my skills. So I did just a really simple top mate, I think it's called mm -hmm. a top mate link. It's kind of like link tree, but a little bit more sophisticated. So I did that, slapped that on the LinkedIn profile. And over time, you know, some folks would trickle in, book a call for whatever reason. And that's what I've continued to do. So I would say start small, start increasing your visibility because it took me a year mm -hmm. to get to this point of just having people trickle in. Like it's still not enough to be like, okay, well, I don't need a nine to five. Mm -hmm. So start small, stay consistent and don't pass up coffee chats with folks just because they might not seem interesting or, or have a, a high level title or something like that because your network is it's cliche but it is quite literally your net worth so mm -hmm. yeah and throughout those steps how do you distinguish yourself in the consulting field you just gotta put your own spin on things that's what i realized because there are millions of folks who can do who have probably my exact same skill set come from a bioinformatics background. They can do machine learning. They let their programs, but people will hire people and people will pay people, you know, people like to hear from people. So there's definitely a humanity aspect in monetizing your skills that makes you stand out because that part is just you. Like nobody else can monetize their skills and, and put a specific spin on things like you can. So that's what I've tried to focus on now, less so what can I do, but here's how I do it. Great. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting some of the different paths that can come out from a comp bio field. I did see that you are the president of the Caribbean Students Union. And as a Jamaican myself, I have to ask, like, Where's your family? <laughs> yep. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> no, we gotta edit that. Uh, no, no, we gotta keep it. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm so sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> My family's from Dominica. People usually don't know that we exist, but yeah. I have I have friends from there. I, yeah. It's so nice. Well, it was really great talking to you and getting your perspective. I think my main takeaways here are the people skills and, you know, really using the tools that are out there to just connect with people and be human to really mm -hmm. distinguish yourself. So thank you for sharing your wisdom there. Yeah, just wanted to say, yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective. I think your focus on basically just doing you and focusing on that throughout your journey has really paid off in a way that I think a lot of people will be able to learn from, especially since, you know, it's not like there's not space for all of us. It's hard right now if you are on the purely tech side, um, I'm sure, but I think something that is still valuable is our skill sets and just being able to tell our stories through through them. So I think you really have a unique one, and I'm really grateful that we were able to share that here today. Thank you so much. I had a great time with you ladies. Like I said, I hope this helps someone maybe in a tough spot trying to make a decision mm -hmm. or just evaluating options, but really, really happy for this space and to have met all of you. Yeah.
So where would you like to be found moving forward from anyone listening? Where can they get in touch with you? Probably on LinkedIn. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking, do I have, I don't have a website. So just (laughs) find me on LinkedIn, shoot me an email. I think my email is on there. I think my phone number might be on there too, but LinkedIn is probably best. Cool. All right. And we'll put that in the show notes for folks, the, the link to your profile. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much to our audience for listening in to our Compile Cafe episode. If you have any questions you'd like answered on the podcast, again, email us at podcast at blackwomancompile.org or leave a message at 302-715-BWCB. The Kanbayo Cafe podcast is brought to you by Ijama Miramiku, Melissa Minto, and Janae Adams. Learn more about us at blackwomenkanbayo.org and also tap into ways that you can become a member or a supporter today. Thank you for listening.